Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. So this week we're carrying on with our John series, That You May Believe, and we're looking at the signs and I am statements from the Gospel of John, which the writer says is written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so last week, if you were at our joint service, we began with the first part, uh, chapter 11, which is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And we, we focused on the I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And so this week, we're actually going to be continuing in verse chapter 11. So rather than reading chapters 12 and 13, this week I'm actually going to give you the homework to do that for next week, okay? So it's worth spending an extra week in this particular chapter because it's such a massive topic. And what we got into last week was one of the most important topics of life, which is this thing called the mystery of evil and suffering. And as Jack, Pastor Grubby, Pastor Jack said, never know what I'm supposed to call him. (laughs) Affectionately, we call him Grubby because God calls him Grubby, apparently. So what we began looking at last week was this question of evil and suffering is the universal question because it's the one aspect of reality that is going to impact your life no matter who you are, what culture you're living in, what nation you're in, what age of time you're living in, you are going to face the reality of a broken world that's filled with evil and suffering to different degrees. And so this is not just a question for Christians to answer. This is a question that everyone is forced to contend with no matter what religion or background or belief system that you're a part of. And so the reason I call it a mystery, it's more than a problem because it's a mystery. And a mystery is something that is so large, so incomprehensible that the human brain cannot wrap its head around it. That's the essence of a mystery. But even more than that, it's even more of a mystery because unlike many other things, there is not a single person who can stand outside of this topic as an innocent bystander and just coldly, rationally observe it. Why? Because we're all, to one extent or another, implicated in this mystery. Because evil's not just out there. When every person is honest with themselves, we also know evil is in here. And so it's not only the problem of what do I do about the evil in there, but what do I do about the evil that's in me? The person that I know I should be, and yet am not. And so, because we're dealing with this great mystery, it's part of why I think the Bible doesn't actually, you know, you think, oh, this is an ambitious topic, Ian, and it is. But the reason I'm not going to even try to give you a fully complete, fully orbed answer is that the Bible doesn't try to do that. The Bible, because this is a mystery, it gives us a response to the problem And we're ultimately going to see the ultimate response that it gives is this. Look to Jesus. All right? So we don't find an answer that 
that is sufficient to answer every single little question that we have about evil and suffering, but we do have a response that we're going to see engages the mind, comforts the heart, and activates the will. Heart, mind, and will. So the message today is entitled, The Crying God. And we're going to see how Jesus is the ultimate response to evil, and his response is completely unique. So, just to remind us, I'm going to read sections of John 11 as we go along, but just to remind us, John 11 begins as Jesus is told, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, your friend, is dying. And it emphasizes that he loved Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. So, he stayed where he was for several more days and chooses, apparently, to do nothing about it. And, of course, as you read about that situation, you can probably think of a time in your life where you were crying out to God, you were asking God to move, and you didn't feel like he showed up. Right? And so, it makes us think of those moments where we cry out, God, why? And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about why we ask why. And that's kind of what I want to get into today. Why is it that we ask this question? And I think one of the things I like to teach as, as we look at apologetics, you know, the giving a reasonable answer for your faith is when you're dealing with a tough objection, the first thing you got to do is question the question. Break down the question. What is underneath? What are the underlying beliefs that lead a person to even ask this question in the first place? And so when we begin to do that with this question— you see that there's actually several underlying beliefs or assumptions that need to be in place before a person would even ask this question. All right, so the first point here is that asking why, whenever you ask why, it's revealing assumptions that you have about God, about suffering, and about life. All right, so that's our, our first point. For a person to look at suffering and cry out, God, why? It shows they're already assuming three things, right? If you even, if you ask that question or if you use it as an objection, you're coming from a context of three things that you already believe. Number one, it shows that you're assuming God is personal. God is not just the universe, not just the force, because you don't talk to something that's impersonal. Actually, it's more than that because the question doesn't even make sense unless you're talking about that kind of God. And yet the fact that we ask the question and people of all different walks of life and belief systems continually ask that question, I believe it shows that there's an intuition in the human heart that we know there must be a personal God out there. We're taught, we have this innate desire to talk to not just something, but someone So that's the first thing that we assume, that there is a personal kind of God. Number two, we're assuming that that suffering is actually a real thing. We'll see why that's important later, but you're assuming suffering is real. Number three, to ask this question, you're actually building in an assumption of the way life should be. So if you're saying, God, why? It shouldn't be like this. Well, that means you, you have an idea of what you think life should be like. So 
You need those three things to be in place, even to be able to ask the question, let alone to try and respond to it. And so I believe this is a question that touches every single aspect of our humanity, our our mind, our heart, our will. And so Jesus actually offers a response that addresses each one of those things. You know, there's far more in the Bible about suffering than just God works all things together for good of those who love him. That's true. But we need to fill out the picture because life is more complicated than that verse can often handle, right? So we're going to carry on in this story. In last week's message, if you missed it, you can go back online on our website and listen to it or on our pod and listen to it. It was a great and very personal, vulnerable message from Pastor Grubby. So he really stopped at that, that first encounter with Martha. So Jesus is, he's told Lazarus is dying, right? He stays put for a few days and then he finally goes once he's heard that Lazarus is dead, okay? So he goes back to Bethany where, by the way, they had just been trying to kill him. So he goes back to Bethany and at this point he encounters three sets of characters, all right? And so the first person that he meets is Martha. And we're gonna see that in each of these encounters, he answers this question from a different aspect in a completely different way with each person. So the first person he meets is Martha. She goes out to him. So that we're going to read from verse 21 here. John eleven twenty one. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. I don't know how you picture Martha as she's going out to Jesus there, but I picture her with a bit of an attitude. Like, Jesus, what the heck? You're late, right? And when you read it in the context of Scripture, this is almost like a living psalm. Because if you read the book of Psalms, about half of the psalms, at least, are what are called laments. And laments often go, God, what in the world is going on? You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Where are you? And they usually end with a note of, and yet, I'm still going to praise you. I'm still going to worship you right? And so this is what you see in Martha. It's like, Jesus, what, where were you? But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And so this is really, I call this the complaint of the faithful, all right? And that's legitimate. <laughs> and so she is complaining, but she's affirming that even so, she still has trust in him. But she can't wrap her head around it, Right? And so how does Jesus respond? Well, here's how Jesus responds. He says, Jesus engages the mind with the ministry of truth. And I see a few people taking notes. That's great. The rest of you, I'm very disappointed. This is good stuff. So Jesus encounters Martha, who's struggling to wrap her head around it. And what is, how does he respond? He responds to her. He engages her mind with what you could call the ministry of truth. All right. So 
Remember, when you're asking this question, when a person is asking this question, we're assuming that God exists, that he's personal, that he cares, and that he is able to do something about it. Otherwise, if any of those things are missing, the question doesn't make any sense. There ceases to be a question, right? And so Jesus affirms to her, you're right in what you assume. That is a correct intuition about the way the universe really is. You're right to cry out and ask because there is a God who listens, who cares, and has the power to do something about it. And so this is really something that's unique in Christian faith because Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha. You notice that? Even though she's got a little bit of an attitude, even though she's looking at her watch, Jesus does not rebuke her and put her down for asking the question, you know, how dare you ask me? I'm God, right? Now he would be perfectly within his rights to do that, but that's not what he does. He allows her to ask. And as he does that, he encourages her to remember the implications of what she professes to believe. Martha, you you say you believe this. And then he, he looks in her eyes and says, do you really believe this? Do you believe this? And I think many times when we face discomfort, suffering, evil, a lot of times what you'll hear, the advice of the world, our tendency maybe, is put it out of your mind. You know, just, just don't think about it. You know, Happy Gilmore went to his happy place, right? Go to your happy place. Put it out of your mind. Get a massage, you know? Go to a spa. Meditate. Empty your mind of any thoughts, right? And that's how you're going to be able to, to get through it. And yet Jesus says in him, when you're facing evil and discomfort and suffering, the answer is not to think less. The answer is to think more about the right thing. The answer is to think more about the God that you say you believe in. And I love in the, another aspect of the Psalms is, you know, a lot of times you see David going through these episodes and he, he begins preaching to himself, right? Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast, right? And I, have you ever had to do that? It's such a, it's a comforting and realigning thing in the midst of that moment to set your mind off the problem, yes, but set your mind on God. What a comfort to set our minds on the God who is there. He's not only there, but he loves us and he has the power of lordship over everything. And Jesus says, remember who I am. Remember, Martha, that the true sickness that leads to death is not any kind of physical suffering on this earth, the true sickness that leads to death is to be separated from me because I am the source of life. And so to have me, to be connected to me, is worth any suffering that the world can throw at you. Because that's a kind of life that transcends death. It transcends suffering. And that's why Jesus is able to say, even though he knows Lazarus is going to die. He says, this is not the sickness that leads to death. In fact, this episode is going to glorify God. 
And so, do you believe this, he asks us. Do you believe this? And I think in Christ, this is one of the ways that our suffering is able to glorify him because we asked that question in the break and hopefully some of you had a good conversation about that. It's in those moments of suffering that a lot of times you get such a clarity of what is actually important, what you actually value beyond the things that, you know, clog up and and busy our lives. It's in those moments that you're given this gift of a clarity of what's actually important, what's actually valuable. And I remember Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple Computers, he gave a commencement speech at Stanford years ago. And he said when he was diagnosed with cancer the first time, he his whole perspective on life shifted and he began to look himself in the, in the mirror every morning and say, I, you know, if knowing that I might die, how am I going to live today? Roughly, I forget the exact words, but what a shift to be able to live as if we're going to die every day. And that, that's a way that God uses the suffering that we go through to actually bring him glory. So let's carry on the story because there's a lot more. So we're going to look at the second encounter that Jesus has, and this is with Mary. So verse 28. When she had said this, that's Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now you probably noticed Mary uses the exact same words as Martha. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And yet you can tell she's struggling in a completely different way because she's not able to, to bring out the rational truths of scripture, she just breaks down in tears, right? She falls at his feet, weeping. And and we know from the other points of scripture where we see Mary that this is part of her personality. She tends, she seems to be more of a feeler, whereas Martha tends to be more of a thinker, a practical person, right? And so there's, there's something important to that, but Something mysterious that I want to deal with first is this shortest verse in the Bible in English, Jesus wept. Why is Jesus crying? Think about that. Why is it that Jesus is crying? Because this really doesn't seem to be in character. Hasn't he just met Martha and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will never die. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. You know, Jesus has just declared himself to be God. The power of life and death in his hands. Why is he crying? 
Like if you were writing this story, so say you're, you know, you're a writer for Marvel Comics and you're writing this story of your hero, you know, and they probably would cast like Dwayne Johnson in this role or something, right? He's been cast as a god a couple times. You know, in this situation, wouldn't he just kind of like, don't worry, I got this, right? Now put yourself in John's shoes. If you're writing gospel, an account of Jesus's life, Jesus, your hero, your God, your savior, and you're writing it to convince a male-dominated Roman world that this man is actually a God in the flesh, why in the world would you have him cry? Right? I mean, even today we say real men don't cry. Well, you know, do you think real gods cry? (laughs) So this is quite a strange thing if you think about it. I think what this is showing us, just like how Jesus declared to Martha, I am truly, fully divine. Now he's declaring to Mary, I am truly, fully human. I'm both exactly like you in my humanity, and I'm also completely unlike you in my divinity. And so he's not only the all-powerful God with the power of life and death in his hands, he's also fully human God who's come for our rescue, who suffers with us and who weeps with us. And so when you look into the language here, this is not just Jesus being sentimental. He's not just sad because that you'd also run into some theological issues with that, right? It says he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And that, that's a really weak translation, actually, because that word, it has connotations of insurrection. You could actually translate it bellow with anger. And so Jesus is deeply moved, but he's also furious. What is he furious at? I don't think he's furious at Mary or the people. I think it's because Jesus is here standing, staring death in the face his enemy, and he's furious at how death and suffering are destroying the good creation that his father made. And so he's, he's furious at the brokenness that sin has brought into the world and brought into the lives of these people that he so deeply loves. He's angry at death. And it reminds me of, I've probably used this example before, but a person that I very much look up to as a hero in the faith, whose wife had a, a brain tumor and it was operated and she lost the ability to speak. She lost a lot of motor control and she was not the same. And she ended up taking her own life. And I remember when I heard that news, oh, yes, I was sad. Yes, I was, I was moved. I was also furious. I was angry at the life and the love that, that, that suffering and death had stolen from this woman of God. And I do believe she's in God's presence. That's a topic for another day. But I was angry at the theft of this life. And I was angry at how this woman had been stolen from her family through this suffering. And so I believe that opens a window into, Jesus, into what Jesus may have been 
experiencing and feeling and emoting in this moment. Because Jesus is not indifferent. He's not, he's not aloof and removed. He's crying with anger at the effects of the devastation of sin in the world. You know what that tells us? Death and evil are not God's doing. They're not his will. And so he's responding in anger to the distortion of his will. And it also tells us, like Pastor Jack said last week, that he, when we see things like war in Ukraine, war in Syria, when we see you know, orphans and widows and, and poverty and hunger, God hates these things. He's not just, you know, he's not just sentimental about it. He hates these things because they are such a destruction of the goodness that he created us for. And so God weeps with us. He feels this anger and this sadness towards death and destruction that, you know, beyond what we are able to experience. And so to be in the midst of suffering, and maybe you're like Mary, where you experience that less up here and you experience it more here, to know that Jesus is weeping with you. He's there. The things that you're angry at, he's angry at them. The things that you're brokenhearted about, he is brokenhearted about. And he's right alongside you. And he experienced every single one. Have you been betrayed? Jesus was betrayed. Have you been unjustly accused? Jesus was unjustly accused. Have you, been, have you been put on trial in the public sphere? Jesus was put on trial and his name was dragged through the mud. Every single person abandoned him, it says. And so, I mean, you can't come up with a type of human suffering and deprivation that Jesus has not also experienced alongside us. This is the fullness of, of his humanity. And actually, as I'm thinking about that, this probably speaks more to the majority world than it does to us. In the, We suffer, but we also live in a vast amount of comfort. And what's interesting is when I looked into this, I've spoken on this a lot of times on university campuses and different things. And one of the things that you find out about the history of, you know, the problem of evil is that no one thought this was a problem until a couple hundred years ago when Europeans started getting rich and wealthy and comfortable and they began to ask, well, how dare I be uncomfortable? How dare I suffer? And what's interesting is in other parts of the world that, that <laughs> please hear me, you know, it's not that we don't suffer, but it's that there's, there are degrees. And in places where that is more understood as a natural part of life, it's not so much the question of God, why would you allow that? It's, it's the question of God, how are you going to get me through this? Right? And you see that in the Old Testament. You see it in scripture in general. God, how are you going to get me through this? And so it's so beautiful to me that Jesus is the only weeping God. The crying God. He's the only God who would become human to come and rescue us from this mess that we've created. it's because he's just like us. He's like us in our humanity. He weeps with us. He understands what we go through. He can represent us because of his humanity. But also we rejoice because he's also completely unlike us in our divinity, which means he has the power to actually do something about it. He doesn't only weep for us. He also does what's necessary to deal with the problem. And so 
We're going to get into that in the next point. But just on a, on a really practical level, I've got to mention here that Jesus displays a very high emotional intelligence in this chapter, right? It's very easy when someone's going through something and it's awkward because you don't really know what to say. It's very easy to just spit out platitudes, right? It's very easy to, you know, just use a Bible verse. And, you know, if you've ever been in that play, it's usually not that helpful, (laughs) right? Can anyone agree to that? So (laughs) the thing about suffering is that everyone deals with it in different ways. You've got thinkers, feelers, doers, and everything in between. We're all partly those things, but usually there's one of those things that leads out, right? And so that affects how you experience and process suffering. And so if someone's more of a thinker like Martha, you might be struggling you know, in the mind, intellectually about it, trying to wrap your head around it. How does it make sense? I don't, I don't understand it, right? But if you're more of a feeler, more of a primarily emotive person like Mary, you're probably not so much thinking about it. You're just wrestling with it internally. You're just brokenhearted about it. And Jesus shows us you've got to deal with these two types of people completely differently, right? There's nothing worse than dealing with someone who needs comfort and telling them, well, let me give you three different, you know, philosophical views about God, why God allowed sin, you know, right? There's nothing worse than that, right? But there's also nothing worse than for someone who's really wrestling with it mentally to just kind of go along, oh, they're there, right? And back to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, I didn't know this until recently, he was actually in church as a kid, And one day he went to the pastor and asked him about the question of suffering and the pastor did something like that. And I'm sure there's more to the story, but that was part of his story of why he left the church. Why? Because he didn't think that Jesus had anything to say to his mind. Right? And so there is not one single bulletproof answer or way to respond. This is the question with a thousand faces and you've got to answer the questioner, not just just the question. And that's what Jesus always does. And so we're going to find the last encounter that he has here, the third one. And here we've seen thinkers, we've seen feelers, and now we see a group that that really is all about the practical. All right. And so verse 36, it says, so the Jews said, or the Judeans said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he have opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? And so it's interesting in, in this third encounter that in a way you, you could think, well, they're, they're kind of saying the same thing that Mary and Martha had said, right? Lord, if you'd been here, it wouldn't have happened. So they're saying, well, couldn't he have done something about this if he were here? And the difference is Mary and Martha's complaints were the complaints of the faithful. This is a complaint of someone who wants to reject, who wants to, a reason to disregard. And so in a lot of ways, John presents the Judeans as kind of like the hard-headed skeptics of his day. These are the the Richard Dawkinses of his day. And they look at suffering and they see in it a reason to reject God. And the argument goes a little bit like this. Either, okay, so suffering exists. Either God is willing but unable to do something about it, in which case he's not all-powerful, he's not really God, or he's able to do something about it and he's unwilling, which means he's not actually good. And either way, I want nothing to do with him. 
This is the, the dilemma as it's presented. But here's the thing. Remember, the problem of evil is not just a problem for Christians. It's a problem for every worldview because every worldview has to confront it and provide some sort of explanation for it. And so the question is, if you look at suffering, if you experience suffering and you want to turn away from God, what are you turning towards? The question becomes, well, how are you going to respond? What's your response to this mystery? Because we're all in it. And if you're coming at this from an atheistic perspective, you actually run into an even bigger problem. Because remember, one of the things you have to assume in this objection is that you, you know how life should be, right? Which means you think you have a reason to look at something and say, that's good and that's evil. That's right, that's wrong. What foundation gives you the, the ability to say something like that apart from God? And so it's not, you know, sometimes you think, well, there's, there's no hope outside of Jesus. Well, that's true, but there's also no ability to look at the world and say, this is the way the world should be. All we can do apart from God is say, this is the way the world is. And you can't jump from an is to an ought. If all we are is a random accident of, you know, of nature, then what gives us the ability to say, this is the way things should be or shouldn't be? All we can say is this is the way things are. And so what happens is you're not able to ask the question from that footing. You cannot look at anything in life and say, that's wrong. That's not the way it should be because we can't say the way things should be. And so a lot of times, if you encounter an, an honest perspective from this camp, they'll say, well, we can't say it's good or bad. It just is. Deal with it. Put up with it. This is just the way the life is. Suck it up, right? And so (laughs) C.S. Lewis actually considered the existence of evil not an argument against God, but an argument for God because without God, the concept of evil would make no sense. Evil is not actually a thing in itself. Evil is actually a distortion of something good. So you have to know what's good first before you can point to evil. So that's an atheist perspective. What What if you consider other world religions? Well, I'm going to very quickly run through this. What you broadly see is that in other worldviews, what happens is either you deny the existence of God or the character of God, or you deny the existence of evil. So in Islam, for instance, you're not able to ask this question. It's not allowed to ask why within Islam. Why? Because according to Islam, the character of God is not revealed. You can't know it. All you can know is his will. So you can't say God is good or God cares. Well, you can say God cares, but you can't say God is love. All you can say is this is his will and that's it. So you deny the character of God. Now on the other side, if you go towards Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, what happens there is that they actually deny the existence of of evil. So according to Buddhism, evil is, in Hinduism, evil is an illusion created by our attachment to earthly things. And so the answer is to cease our desires, to, to put our desires out of our mind. And once you are able to put all desires out of your mind, including the desire to exist, well, then evil is gone. The illusion is gone, but you also cease to exist. That's what nirvana means. It means the, the extinguishing of a candle. 
And so I don't think, obviously I haven't done all this justice, but I don't think that either of those options do justice to the way we actually experience life. We experience life as if there are some things that are truly good and truly bad. We can't seem to get away from it, right? And there's certainly nothing that feels more real than suffering. And so the only worldview that actually holds these things together is in Jesus. Because Jesus says, yes, there really is a God who's all powerful and all good. And therefore you have the right to say that's evil. And that's right. That's good. But he also says, yes, suffering is real. It angers me. It upsets me. It is not the way that it should be. And you know what? I'm not going to leave you to it. I'm going to step in and suffer with you. And so how does Jesus, we saw how he responds to the thinkers, to the feelers. How does he respond to the skeptics? Well, if you read on in the story, you find out Jesus does not proclaim the ministry of truth. He doesn't give them a sermon about who he is and who God is. All right. He doesn't comfort them with the ministry of tears as he did with Mary. What happens is he goes and raises Lazarus. He says, roll away the stone, Lazarus, come forth. That's his response. And so his response, you could say, Jesus activates the will with the ministry of works. He activates the mind with the ministry of truth. He activates the he, he, he comforts the heart with the ministry of tears, and he activates the will with the ministry of works. And if you remember back to the story of the man born blind, Jesus said, encountering evil and suffering, you know, that the disciples wanted to come and use the guy as a, as a philosophical case study, right? And Jesus says, no, when you encounter evil and suffering as my followers, what it is is an opportunity to do the works of God. That's what he says. This has happened so that you can do the works of God and glorify him. So what are the works of God? Well, just read scripture. It's to bind up the brokenhearted. It's to heal the sick. It's to set the captive free. It's to care for the orphan and the widow and the poor. It's it's this fatherly, compassionate heart of God. And most of the time, what you find is when you're confronting evil in the world, people are not going to be won over by the ministry of truth, by the ministry of tears, so much as the ministry of works. You hear it a lot. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. I need more than thoughts and prayers right now. I need you to act. (laughs) I need you to do something, right? And often it's through the doing of something, it's through the ministry of works, that you then have the opportunity for a ministry of truth and of comfort. Yeah? And so it's through his action that Jesus shows them who he really is. And he tells us that it's by our loving works that the world will see who he is too. And by our love for one another. And so Christians always have an impetus to take action in doing good. But Ian, you might say, you don't have to be a Christian to do charity work, right? You know, there's lots of non-Christians doing wonderful things in the world, and that's true. The difference with Christian works, I think we can see it best in, in contrast. And um, I hope you see where I'm going with this. This is not meant to be in any way intentionally controversial. But over the past few years, we're all aware there's been several different movements of social justice. 
There's been the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the LGBTQ movement, and they've taken on a massive place within society. And I think to take a charitable view, I think actually these are, all of these things are arising out of the deep cry of the human heart for goodness, for truth, for justice. There's a cry stirring up within the world, within society, for those good things that God's created us for. The problem is, when you approach all of those things from a purely secular mindset, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everything, you know, has been purely secular because a lot of Christians have also worked towards many of these things. But if you approach it from a purely secular mindset, you can be very good at pointing out the evil and injustice, but there's not a ton to say about how to fix it. Especially Now, you can say a lot about society and those things, and that's, that's good and true, but you're still left with the question of what about the evil in the human heart? How do we do that? How do we fix it? And so, the best answer that's often offered is in that, in, in that setting is, well, you've got to work to atone for your sins or your privilege or your ancestors' sins and privilege. And there's, there, there are many, many things to be done along those lines But where does it end? How can there not just be atonement, but actually redemption? And so you never actually get to the end of it because there's no such thing as grace. And so Jesus is the only answer to evil that not only gives us a reason to take action, but it also gives us a way to deal with the evil that's present within the human heart. And you have to have both because we're all implicated (laughs) in the evil that's in the human heart. And so the ultimate answer is the cross. Jesus proclaims at the start that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but the irony, of course, is that it will end in Jesus' death. Jesus marches back into the territory where he'd been expelled, where they were attempting to murder him, and he's awakening Lazarus at the risk of his own life. If you read on in chapter 12, as you will, because you're all good students, you'll find out this is kind of like the last straw. This is the thing where the Pharisees say, okay, we're going to kill this guy. The very next few verses after this story. And so Jesus doesn't only risk his life, he gives his life. And so what Jesus did, a lot of times people think, you know, evil is a little bit like, you know, the, the, the gauntlet in uh, the Avengers, you know, where he just clicks his fingers and everything happens. Well, why God, if God's all powerful, why can't he just click his fingers and, and be done with evil? And the problem, of course, is if God clicks his fingers and makes an end of evil, he also makes an end of us. Jesus makes the only way to make an end of evil without making an end of us. And so, None of this means that we know all the answers to every instance of evil and suffering. Remember my grandmother talking about my my grandfather, his illness. She said it was like a 10-year funeral, and I saw no good that came out of it. And I didn't have an answer for her. She has an answer now, (laughs) but she she didn't have an answer for that in this life. And so the question's not, it's not really reasonable to expect that we could understand all of God's motives, 
The question is not, can we understand it all? The question is, even when we don't understand, do we have reason to trust him? Do we have reason to trust him even when we can't comprehend his reasons? And we may not know what the answer is, but we do know what the answer isn't. And it's not that he doesn't love us. Why? Because we see Jesus on the cross. We see Jesus giving himself for us. And so God's answer ultimately to evil and suffering is not a book. It's not a philosophy. It's not an experience. It's not program of action. It's a person. The man, Jesus, who shows us both who God is and what true humanity is who affirms our suffering by suffering with us and who takes the only action that can actually put an end to suffering without making an end of us. And the hope that he offers is in the resurrection. You know, Lazarus, when he raised him, he went on to die again. But Jesus is a different kind of resurrection. It's actually a different word in scripture that he raises to a glorified body that is called the first fruits of what everyone that's in Christ will also experience. And it says in the book of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection life that will be raised to, it will not only defeat evil, but it will actually swallow it up. And when you swallow something, it makes you bigger. (laughs) Somehow, what it's saying is somehow, and this is a mystery, but somehow when we're resurrected and standing before the Lord, all of the suffering and evil that we've experienced will only serve to magnify the glory. It will consume it. It will eat it up and make it bigger. And so this is a mystery that we we simply can't keep them. But the truth is, if God is like Jesus and he was willing to step in and suffer with me, then it means no matter what I go through, I have a reason to still trust him to still trust his character. And so I'm going to close it here and we're going to, we'll, I'll, I'll dismiss you and end our service, but I, not without leaving you with a little bit of homework, okay? You already know you got to read chapters 12 and 13. All right, so do that. But <laughs> I want you to do something in response to this message this week. It's going to take a little bit of boldness, a little bit of faith in trusting God but there's a question that'll come up here. I want you to ask the Lord, what two people, Lord, would you have me minister to this week? Or these, you know, these coming weeks. Two people that are going through some sort of suffering, some sort of pain. And I want you to be bold and ask the Lord to show you one per- at least one person who's not currently a believer. All right, a one one pre-Christian person. <laughs> so I want you to ask the Lord that, like, just spend some time with Him and ask, Lord, bring two people to, to mind: a believer, a non-believer, two non-believers, and ask the Lord, how can I minister to this person? How can I serve them in their suffering? And to approach it, asking for wisdom, Lord, do I approach them? How, is, how are you going to equip me to best serve this person through what they're going through? Do they need the ministry of truth? Do they need reminding of who you are? Encouragement 
Do they need the ministry of tears? Do you want me to just sit with them and weep with them and and listen to them and not say a word? It's hard to do sometimes. (laughs) Do they want the ministry of action? Is there something that I need to do for this person so that, Lord, you might open up an opportunity that I can share who you are? And so don't offer them truth if they need comfort. Don't offer them comfort if they need action. Right? So that's your homework. And I'm really looking forward to what the Lord might do through us and to hear your story over these next couple of weeks. So why don't, we, why don't we stand and pray and I'll close us out. Lord Jesus, we're just humbled and in awe of this great mystery that we've lived out, that we're in the midst of, that we see around the world and in our loved ones and, and within ourselves. Jesus, I thank you that you showed us you care about these things so deeply. You care about what we go through, what we suffer. Lord, your heart is broken and you're enraged by the injustice and destruction of sin. Lord Jesus, would you equip your people, us, Lord, to be ministers of your truth, to be ministers of your tears, your comfort, and Lord, to be ministers of your your works. That in every situation where we encounter suffering, Lord, that through us, you would use it as an opportunity to glorify yourself as we do works that reflect your heart. So Lord, bring those people to mind for each of us, even right now. Who would you have us minister to? Lord, that we would learn wisdom from what we see you doing and that we would do what you would do if you were in our shoes. And I pray that you'd equip us with your Holy Spirit, fill us to overflowing as we leave this place. And I pray your blessing over each of us as we exit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.